Chapter Nine, Part Eight of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Nine. Part Eight. Athenian Enterprise in Italy In the far west, Athens was spreading her influence and pushing her trade. She supplied Etruria with her black red-figured pottery, and there was a market for these products of her industry, even in the remote valley of the Po. Her ships brought back metalworks from Tuscany, carpets and cushions from Carthage, corn, cheese, and pork from Sicily. The Greek cities of Sicily had gradually adopted the Attic standard for their currency, and in the little Italian republic on the Tiber, which was afterwards destined to make laws for the whole world, the fame of the legislation of Solon was so high that envoys were sent to Athens to obtain a copy of the code. Thus Athens had stepped into the place of Chalcis. She was now the chief Ionian trader with Italian and Sicilian lands. Her rival in this western commerce was Corinth, but she was beginning to outdistance the great Dorian merchant city. In this competition Athens had one advantage. By the possession of Naupactus she could control the entrance to the Corinthian Gulf, a perpetual menace to Corinth, while the hatred which existed between Corinth and her colony Corsera prevented this island from being used as useful as it should have been to the Corinthian traffic with the west. On the other hand, Corinth had the advantage of having important colonies in the west, with which she maintained intimate relations, especially Syracuse, and these maritime cities were centers of her trade and influence. Next to Athens herself, Syracuse was probably the largest and most populous city in the Greek world. Athens had no colonies and no such centers. The disadvantage was felt by Themistocles and his active brain devised the occupation of the site of Cyrus, which had been destroyed by its neighbors, but the scheme was not realized. At length the opportunity came when Pericles was at the head of affairs. Here, as in other cases, it fell upon him to execute ideas of Themistocles. The men of old Sybaris, who since the destruction of their own town had dwelled in neighboring cities, thought that they might at length return to build a new Sybaris on the old site. But within five years their old foes, the men of Croton, went up and drove them out. Yet they did not despair, but hoped to compass with the help of others what they had failed to accomplish by themselves. They invited Athens and Sparta to take part in founding a new city. For Sparta the offer had no attraction, but for Athens it was a welcome opportunity the land of Sybaris was famous for its fertility, and the position was suitable for Athenian commerce. But Pericles determined to give the enterprise an international significance. It was to be more than a mere Athenian speculation. It was proclaimed throughout the Peloponnesus that whosoever wished might take part in the foundation of the new colony. The Peloponnesus, and especially Achaea, with whose cities Athens had been closely connected in recent years, was the mother country of the Greek colonies which fringed the Tarentine Gulf, 
and the idea of Pericles was that the mother country, under the auspices of Athens, should establish the new city. Achaea, Arcadia, and Elis responded to the call. New Sybaris was founded, and the Athenian predominance was expressed in the image of Athena with Attic helmet on the coins of the young city. But the men of old Sybaris were not content to stand on an equal footing with the colonists who had come to help them from the mother country. They thought that their old connection to the place entitled them to a privileged position. They claimed an exclusive right to the most important offices in the state. Such claims could not be tolerated. A battle was fought, and the Sybarites were driven out. But, when the city was thus deplenished, there was a pressing need for men, and for the second time an appeal was made to Athens, but this time from her own children. To the second appeal Athens, under the guidance of Pericles, responded by an enterprise on a still greater scale. All Greece was now invited to take part in founding a pan-Hellenic colony. In carrying out this project, the right-hand man of Pericles was the seer and interpreter, exegete, Lampon, who was closely connected with the Eleusinian worship, and was the highest authority in Athens on all matters pertaining to religion. He obtained from the Delphic god an oracle touching the new colony. It was to be planted where men could drink water by measure and eat bread without measure. At Athens the enemies of Pericles opposed the project, and especially the pan-Hellenic character which he sought to impress upon it. Cratinus brought out a play deriding Lampon, and asking whether Pericles was a second Theseus, who wanted to cynicize the whole of Greece. But Greece responded to the Athenian proposal, and the colony went forth under the guidance of Lampon. Not far from the site of Sybaris they found a stream gushing from a bronze pipe, which was locally known as the bushel. Here clearly was the measured water to which the oracle pointed while the land was so fruitful that it might well be said to furnish bread without measure. The place was named Thuri, and the new city was designed by Hippodamus, the architect who had laid out the Piraeus in rectangular streets. The constitution of Thuri was naturally a democracy, but though the influence of the Athenian model might be recognized, the colony adopted not the laws of Solon, but those of Zeleucus, the lawgiver of Locri, some years after the foundation the question was asked, Who was the founder? And the Delphic god himself claimed the honor. The coins of Thury were stamped with Athena's head and an olive branch, and the place became, as it was intended, a center of Athenian influence in Italy, although the Attic element in the population failed to maintain its predominance. Section 9. Athenian Policy in Thrace and the Euxine But Athens had greater and more immediate interests in the eastern sea, where she succeeded Miletus, than in the western, where she succeeded Chalcis. The importance of the imports from the Pontus, especially corn, fish, and wood, was more vital than that of the wares which came to her from the west. And hence there was nothing of higher consequence in the eyes of a clear-sighted statesman than the assurance of the line of communication between Athens and the Euxine Sea and the occupation of strong and favorable points on the coast of the Euxine itself. The outer gate of the Euxine was secured by the possession of the Chersonese, which Pericles strengthened, and the inner gate by the control of Byzantium and Chalcedon, 
members of the Athenian confederacy. In the Euxine, Athens relied on the Greek towns which, fringing the shores at distant intervals, looked to her for support against the neighboring barbarians. The corn market in the Athenian agora was sensitive to every political movement in Thrace and Scythia, and it was necessary to be ever ready to support the ships of trade by the presence of ships of war. The growth of a large Thracian kingdom under Teres and his son Sidalces demanded the attention of Athenian statesmen to these regions more pressingly than ever. The power of Teres reached to the Danube, and his influence to Dnieper, but he married his daughter to the king of the neighboring Scythians. It was in order to impress the barbarians of the Euxine regions with a just sense of the greatness of the Athenian sea-power that Pericles sailed himself to the Pontus, in command of an imposing squadron. Of that voyage we know little. It is ascertained that he visited Sinope, and that in consequence of his visit the Athenians gained a permanent footing at that important point. It is probable that he also sailed to the Cimmerian Bosphorus, and visited the Archaeanacted lords of Penticopeum, who were distinguished for many a long year by their abiding friendship to Athens in her good and evil days alike. At Penticopeum was the centre of the Euxine corn trade. This intimacy was of the highest importance. The union of the Thracian tribes under a powerful king constrained Athens also to keep a watchful eye upon the north coast of the Aegean and the eastern front of Macedonia. The most important point on that coast, both from a commercial and strategic point of view, was the mouth of the Strymon, where the Athenians possessed the fortress of Ion. Not far from the mouth was the bridge over which all the trade between Thrace and Macedonia passed to and fro, and up the Strymon valley ran the chief roads into the hinterland. The mountains of the neighborhood were famous for the veins of gold and silver stored in their recesses. The Macedonian king Alexander had tapped a mine near Lake Prasius, which yielded daily a silver talent. In the days of Simon, Athens had attempted to strengthen Aeon by establishing a colony at the Nine Ways by the Strymon Bridge. We saw how that attempt roused the opposition of Thassos, whose interest it menaced and though Thassos was subdued, the colony of the Nine Ways was destroyed by the neighboring barbarians. Thirty years later, Pericles resumed the project with greater success. Hagnon, son of Nicias, led forth a colony of Athenians and others, and founded a new city, surrounded on three sides by the Strymon stream, and called its name Amphipolis. It flourished and became, as was inevitable, the most important place on the coast but a local feeling grew up unfavorable to the mother country, and the city was lost to Athens within fifteen years of its foundation, as we shall see hereafter. Section 10. The Revolt of Samos After the ostracism of Thucydides, Pericles reigned, the undisputed leader of Athenian policy, for nearly fifteen years. He ruled as absolutely as a tyrant, and folk might have said that his rule was a continuation of the tyranny of the Pisistratids. But his position was entirely constitutional, and it had the stablest foundation, his moral influence, over the sovereign people. He had the power of persuading them to do whatever he thought good, 
and every year for fifteen years after his rival's banishment he was elected one of the generals. Although all the ten generals nominally possessed equal powers, yet the man who possessed the supreme political influence and enjoyed the confidence of the people was practically chief of the ten, and had the conduct of foreign affairs in his hands. Pericles was not irresponsible, for at the end of any official year the people could decline to re-elect him and could call him to account for his acts. When he had once gained the undisputed mastery, the only forces which he used to maintain it were wisdom and eloquence. Whatever devices he may have employed in his earlier career for party purposes, he rejected now all vulgar means of courting popularity or catching votes. He believed in himself, and he sought to raise the people to his own wisdom. He would not stoop to their folly. The desire of autocratic authority was doubtless part of his nature but his spirit was fine enough to feel that it was a greater thing to be a leader of free men, whom he must convince by speech, than despot of subjects who must obey his nod. Yet this leader of democracy was disdainful of the vulgar herd, and perhaps no one knew more exactly than he the weak points in a democratic constitution. There is no better equipment for the highest statesmanship than the temper which holds aloof from the public and shows a front of good-natured indifference towards unfriendly criticism. And we may be sure that this quality in the temperament of Pericles helped to establish his success and maintain his supremacy. Pericles was a man of finer fibre than Themistocles, but he was not, like Themistocles, a statesman of originative genius. He originated little. He elaborated the ideas of others. He brought to perfection the sovereignty of the people, which had been fully established in principle long ago. He raised to its height the empire, which had already been founded. As an orator, he may have had true genius. Of that we cannot judge. It was his privilege to guide the policy of his country at a time when she had poets and artists who stand alone and eminent, not only in her own annals and those of Greece, but in the history of mankind. The Periclean age, the age of Sophocles and Euripides, Ictinus and Phidias, was not made by Pericles. But Pericles, though not creative, was one of its most interesting figures. Perhaps his best service to Greece was one which is often overlooked. The preservation of peace for twelve years between Athens and her jealous continental neighbors, an achievement which demanded statesmanship of no ordinary tact. In his military operations he seems to have been competent, though we have not material to criticize them minutely. He was at least generally successful. Five years after the Thirty Years' Peace he was called upon to display his generalship. Athens was involved in a war with one of the strongest members of her confederacy, the island of Samos. The occasion of this war was a dispute which Samos had with another member, Miletus, about the possession of Priena. It appears that Athens, some years before, had settled the constitution of Miletus and placed a garrison in the city, and yet we now find Miletus engaged in a struggle with a non-tributary ally, and when she is worsted, appealing to Athens. The case shows how little we know of the various orderings of the relations between Athens and her allies and subjects. One would have thought the decision of such a case would have rested with Athens from the first. On the appeal, she decided in favor of Miletus, 
and Pericles sailed with forty-four triremes to Samos, where he overthrew the aristocracy, carried away a number of hostages, and established a democratic constitution, leaving a garrison to protect it. The nobles who fled to the mainland returned one night, captured the garrison, and handed them over to the Persian satrap of Sardis, with whom they were intriguing. They also recovered the hostages who had been lodged in the island of Lemnos. Athens received another blow at the same time by the revolt of Byzantium. Pericles sailed speedily back to Samos and invested it with a large fleet. Hearing that a Phoenician squadron was coming to assist the Samians, he raised the siege and with a part of his armament went to meet it. During his absence the Samians gained some successes against the Athenian ships, which were anchored close to the harbor. At the end of two weeks Pericles returned. Either the Phoenicians had not appeared after all, or they had been induced to sail home. Well nigh two hundred warships now blockaded Samos, and at the end of nine months the city surrendered. The Samians undertook to pull down their walls, to surrender their ships, and pay a war indemnity which amounted to fifteen hundred talents, or thereabout. They became subject to Athens, and were obliged to furnish soldiers to her armies, but they were not made tributary. The Athenian citizens who fell in the war received a public burial at Athens. Pericles pronounced the funeral oration, and it may have been on this occasion that he used a famous phrase of the young men who had fallen. The spring, he said, was taken out of the year. Byzantium also came back to the Confederacy. It had been a trying moment for Athens, for she had some reason to fear Peloponnesian intervention. Sparta and her allies had met to consider the situation, and the Corinthians afterwards claimed, whether truly or not, that they deprecated any interference on the general principle that every state should be left to deal with her own rebellious allies. However the Corinthians may have acted on this occasion, it was chiefly the commercial jealousy existing between Athens and Corinth that brought on the ultimate outbreak of hostilities between the Athenians and Peloponnesians, which led to the destruction of the Athenian Empire. It seems that during the excitement of the Samian War, Pericles deemed it expedient to place some restraints upon the license of the comic drama. What he feared was the effect which the free criticisms of the comic poets on his policy might have, not upon the Athenians themselves, but upon the strangers who were present in the theatre, and especially upon citizens of the subject states. The precaution shows that the situation was critical, though the restraints were withdrawn as soon as possible, for they were contrary to the spirit of the time. Henceforward the only check on the comic poet was that he might be prosecuted before the Council of Five Hundred for doing wrong to the people, if his jests against the officers of the people went too far. Comedy had grown up in Athens out of the mummeries of masked revellers who kept the feasts of Dionysus by singing phallic songs and flinging coarse jests at the folk. It was not till after the Persian War that the state recognized it. Then a place was given at the great festival of Dionysus to comic competitions. To the three days which were devoted to the competitions of tragedies, a fourth was added for the new contest. The comic drama then assumed form and shape. Magnes and Chionides were its first masters, but they were eclipsed by Cratinus, the most brilliant comic poet of the age of Pericles. 
There is no more significant symptom of the political and social health of the Athenian state in the period of its empire than the perfect freedom which was accorded to the comic stage. To laugh at everything in earth and heaven, and splash with ridicule every institution of the city and every movement of the day, to libel the statesmen and even jest at the gods. Such license is never permitted in an age of decadence, even under the shelter of religious usage. It can only prevail in a free country where men's belief in their own strength and virtue, in the excellence of their institutions and their ideals, is still true, deep, and fervent. Then they can afford to laugh at themselves. The old comedy is a most telling witness to the greatness of Athens. Section 11. Higher Education. The Sophists. Since the days of Nestor and Odysseus, the art of persuasive speech was held in honor by the Greeks. With the rise of the democratic commonwealths it became more important, and the greater attention which was paid to the cultivation of oratory may perhaps be reflected in the introduction of a new class of proper names, which refer to excellence in addressing public assemblies. The institutions of a Greek democratic city presupposed in the average citizen the faculty of speaking in public and for any one who was ambitious for a political career it was indispensable if a man was hauled into a law court by his enemies and knew not how to speak he was like an unarmed civilian attacked by soldiers in panoply the power of clearly expressing ideas in such a way as to persuade an audience was an art to be learned and taught but it was not enough to gain command of a vocabulary it was necessary to learn how to argue and to exercise oneself in the discussion of political and ethical questions. There was a demand for higher education. This tendency of democracy corresponded to the growth of that spirit of inquiry which had first revealed itself in Ionia in the field of natural philosophy. The study of nature had passed into a higher stage in the hands of two men of genius, whose speculations have had an abiding effect on science. Empedocles distinguished the four elements, and explained the development of the universe by the forces of attraction and repulsion which have held their place till today in scientific theory. This tendency of democracy corresponded to the growth of that spirit of inquiry which had first revealed itself in Ionia in the field of natural philosophy. The study of nature had passed into a higher stage in the hands of two men of genius, whose speculations have had an abiding effect on science. Empedocles distinguished the four elements, and explained the development of the universe by the forces of attraction and repulsion, which have held their place till today in scientific theory. He also foreshadowed the doctrine of the survival of the fittest. Democritus of Abdera, a man of vast learning, originated the atomic theory, which was in later days popularized by Epicurus, and in still later by the Roman Lucretius. The scientific imagination of Democritus generated the world from atoms, like in quality but different in size and weight, existing in void space. Such advances in the explanation of nature implied and promoted a new conception of what may be called methodized knowledge, and this conception was applied to every subject. The second half of the fifth century was an age of technical treatises. Oratory and cookery were alike reduced to systems. Political institutions and received morality became the subject of scientific inquiry. Desire of knowledge had led the Greeks to seek more information about foreign lands and peoples. They had begun both to know more of the world and to regard it with a more critical mind. Enlightenment was spreading, 
prejudices were being dispelled. Herodotus, who was far from being a skeptic, fully appreciates the instructiveness of the story which he tells, how Darius asked some Greeks for what price they would be willing to eat the dead bodies of their fathers. When they cry that nothing would induce them to do so, the king calls a tribe of Indians who eat their parents, and asks them what price they would accept to burn the bodies of their fathers. The Indians exclaim against the bare thought of such a horror. Custom, Pindar had said, and Herodotus echoes, is king of the world, and men began to distinguish between custom and nature. They felt that their own conventions and institutions required justification. The authority of usage and antiquity was not enough, and they compared human society with nature. The appeal to nature led indeed to very opposite theories. In the sight of nature, it was said, all are equal. Birth and wealth are indifferent. Therefore, the state should be built on the basis of perfect equality. On the other hand, it was argued that in the state of nature, the strong man subdues the weaker and rules over them. Therefore, monarchy is the natural constitution. But it matters little what particular inferences were drawn, for no attempt was made to put them into practice. The main point is that the questioning spirit was active. There were clever men everywhere, who refused to take anything on authority, who asked always, How do you know? and claimed to discuss all things in heaven and earth. It was in this atmosphere of critical inquiry and skepticism that Greece had to provide for the higher education of her youth which the practical conditions of the democracy demanded. The demand was met by teachers who travelled about and gave general instruction in the art of speaking and in the art of reasoning, and out of their encyclopedic knowledge lectured on all possible subjects. They received fees for their courses, and were called sophists, of which name perhaps our best equivalent is professors. Properly, a sophist means one who was eminently proficient in some particular art, in poetry, for instance, or cookery. As applied to the teachers who educated the youths who were able to pay, the name acquired a slightly unfavorable color, partly owing to the distrust felt by the masses towards men who know too much, partly to the prejudice which in Greece always existed more or less against those who gave their services for pay, partly too to the jealousy of those who were too poor to pay the fees, and were consequently at a great disadvantage in public life compared with men whom a sophist had trained. But this haze of contempt which hung about the sophistic profession did not imply the idea that the professors were impostors, who deliberately sought to hoodwink the public by arguments in which they did not believe themselves. That suggestion, which has determined the modern meaning of sophist and sophistry, was first made by the philosopher Plato and is entirely unhistorical. The sophists did not confine themselves to teaching. They wrote much. They discussed occasional topics, criticized political affairs, diffused ideas. And it has been said that this part of their activity supplied in some measure the place of modern journalism. But the greatest of the professors were much more than either teachers or journalists. They not only diffused but set afloat ideas. They enriched the world with contributions to knowledge. They were all alike rationalists, spreaders of enlightenment, but they were very various in their views and doctrines. Gorgias of Leontini, Protagoras of Abdera, Prodicus of Seos, Hippias of Elis, Socrates of Athens, each had his own strongly marked individuality. To Socrates, who has a place apart from the others, we shall revert in a later chapter. Prodicus of Seos was a pessimist, and it was doubtless he 
whom the poet Euripides meant by the man who considered the ills of men to be more in number than their good things. It was Prodicus who invented the famous fable of Heracles at the crossway, choosing between virtue and pleasure. Of all the sophists, Protagoras was perhaps the greatest. He first distinguished the parts of speech, and founded the science of grammar for Europe. His activity as a teacher was chiefly at Athens, where he seems to have been intimate with Pericles. The story that Pericles and Protagoras spent a whole day arguing on the theory of punishment, a question which is still unsettled, illustrates the services which the sophists rendered to speculation. The retributive theory of justice, which logically enough led to the trial and punishment of animals and inanimate things, was called into question. And a counter-theory started that the object of punishment was to deter. Protagoras was a victim of the religious prejudices of the Athenians. He wrote a theological book, which he published by reading it aloud before a chosen audience in the house of his friend Euripides. The thesis of the work is probably contained in the first sentence. In regard to the gods, I cannot know that they exist, nor yet that they do not exist, for many things hinder such knowledge, the obscurity of the matter, and the shortness of human life. Protagoras may have himself believed in the gods. What he asserted was that their existence could not be a matter of knowledge. Unluckily, the book itself has perished. For a certain Pythodorus came forward as the standard-bearer of the state religion, and accused Protagoras of impiety. The philosopher deemed it wise to flee from Athens. He sailed for Sicily, and was lost at sea. When Euripides makes the choir of Thracian women in his play of Palamedes cry bitterly, Ye have slain, O Greeks! Ye have slain the nightingale of the muses, the wizard bird that did no wrong. The poet was thinking of the dead friend who had come from the Thracian city. The sale of the book of Protagoras was forbidden in Athens, and all copies that could be found were publicly burned. The case of Protagoras was not the only case of the kind. Years before, the philosopher Anaxagoras had been condemned for impiety. Years after, Socrates would be condemned. These cases show that the Athenians were not more enlightened than other peoples, or less prejudiced. The attitude of Protagoras to theology was perfectly compatible with a fervent devotion to the religion of the state, but an Athenian jury was not sufficiently well educated to discern this. When we admire the spread of knowledge and reasoning in the fifth century, we must remember that the mass of citizens was not reached by the new light. They were still sunk in ignorance, suspicious and jealous of the training which could be got only by sons of the comparatively well-to-do, or those who were exceptionally intellectual. Gorgias was a philosophical thinker and politician, but he won his renown as an orator and a stylist. He taught Greece how to write a new kind of prose, not the cold style which appeals only to the understanding, but a brilliant style rhythmic, flowery in diction, full of figures, speaking to the sense and imagination. In the inscription of a statue which his grand-nephew erected to him at Olympia, it is said, No mortal ever invented a fairer art to temper the soul for manlihood and virtue. Wherever he went he was received with enthusiasm. We shall presently meet him as an ambassador at Athens. The sophists were the chief, the professional expounders of the intellectual movement. But the exaltation of reason had a no less powerful supporter in the poet Euripides. He used the tragic stage to disseminate rationalism. He undermined the popular religion from the very steps of the altar. By the necessity of the case he accomplished his work indirectly, but with consummate dexterity. 
Aeschylus and Sophocles had reverently modified religious legend, adapting it to their own ideals, interpreting it so as to satisfy their own moral standard. Euripides takes the myths just as he finds them, and contrives his dramas so as to bring the absurdities into relief. He does not acquiesce, like the older tragic poets, in the ways of the gods with men. He is not content to be a resigned pessimist. He will receive nothing on authority. He declines to bow to the orthodox opinions of his respectable fellow-countrymen, on such matters as the institution of slavery or the position of women in society. He refuses to endorse the inveterate prejudice which prevailed even at Athens in favor of noble birth. But perhaps nothing is so significant as his attitude to the contempt which the Greeks universally felt for other races than their own. Nowhere is Euripides more sarcastic than when, in his Medea, he makes Jason pose as a benefactor of the woman whom he has basely betrayed, on the ground that he has brought her out of an obscure barbarian home, and enabled her to enjoy the privilege of living in Greece. Yet we need not go to the most daring thinkers, to Euripides and the Sophists, to discern the spirit of criticism at work. The Periclean age has left us few more significant, and certainly no more beautiful, monuments than a tragic drama which won the first prize at the great Dionysia a few years after the Thirty Years' Peace. The soul of Sophocles was in untroubled harmony with the received religion, but, living in an atmosphere of criticism and speculation, even he could not keep his mind aloof from the questions which were debated by the thoughtful men of his time. He took as the motive of his Antigone a deep and difficult question of political and of ethical science, the relation of the individual citizen to the state. What shall a man do if his duty of obedience to the government of his country conflicts with other duties? Are there any obligations higher than that of loyalty to the laws of his city? The poet answers that there are such, for instance, certain obligations of religion. He justifies Antigone in her disobedience to the king's decree. The motive lends itself to dramatic treatment, and never has it been handled with such consummate art as by him who first saw its possibilities. But it is worth observing that the Antigone, besides its importance in the history of dramatic poetry, has a high significance in the development of European thought, as the first presentation of a problem which both touches the very roots of ethical theory and is, in daily practice, constantly clamoring for solution. End of chapter 9, part 11 Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on February twentieth, two 2008